0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Harriet Johnston, Ytree's Head of Brand and Marketing, and I'm hosting a series of Futureverse episodes in which we dig into topics that are closely related to Ytree's vision. That is, to build a world where wealth is defined by how we live, not what we have. And to get there, we're going to transform personal finance by giving transparency, efficiency, and meaning back to money. Today, we're introducing a new theme in the Futureverse, risk. Over the coming weeks, we'll be exploring risk in all its forms. We'll be speaking to a war correspondent and an adventurer about risking their life for their work. And we'll hear from an entrepreneur about the risks inherent in building an idea from scratch. But today, we're starting with a topic that goes to the heart of Ytree's world, financial risk. For the most part, we often assume it's best to go through life avoiding risk but that's not how investing works. Risk is crucial. So how to quantify financial risk? Does a higher appetite for risk necessarily yield a higher return? How to set a personal risk level? We'll be answering these questions and more today. As always, in each episode, I'm joined by a member of the Ytree team as my co-host. Today, it's Ytree's co-founder, Johnny Hampel. Hi, Johnny. Hi, Harriet. And joining us is Nick Humphreys. Nick is a man well-versed in financial risk. He's built a career around it. He's the senior partner and executive chairman of HG Capital, the leading European private equity firm focused on software and services. He started his investment career in 1990 and has focused exclusively on technology and software since 1994. Welcome to the podcast, Nick.
1: Hi, Harriet. Hi, Johnny.
0: So Nick, let's start at the beginning, um, back to 1994, or maybe before, can you tell us a bit about your background and career?
1: Uh, yeah, delighted to. So um, I'm a, uh, I guess, born in a mining town in, uh, in Nottinghamshire originally, went to the local kind of comprehensive school, uh, was one of three or four people out of about 300 that got to university. So I was very fortunate to get to university in Salford in Manchester. And did electronics and computer science there, and via uh, a very circuitous route, I ended up coming straight out of university into private equity, venture capital, in 1990. So I joined Three I on a graduate scheme in 1990, um, and uh, and was one of 20 people that did that. And then decided in '93, having made a few investments between 1993 that frankly were, let's say, they were high up the risk spectrum, i.e., they went wrong. I went back to my wife and said, Look, I'm probably going to get fired sometime soon when they realize that I'm, as a generalist investor in any sector, I really don't know what I'm doing. And so I did the classic engineer thing of trying to decide if I was going to have a career, I had to probably have a strategy to be, in my terms, kind of inch wide, mile deep, to pick one thing, try and do one thing very, very well, which I guess is a thing that's run through my kind of life and career. I was a techie, nerdy, Star Wars generation kind of guy from the kind of 80s. And so, I picked tech, which I enjoyed, and I've then invested exclusively in tech and in particular in kind of software and IT services for the last 30 years since kind of 93, 94.
0: So I'm going to start now by moving us onto the subject of risk. What is HG's approach to risk and how do you measure risk?
1: You know, risk is a very, very broad topic. And so let me maybe touch on two or three areas and then we can kind of delve into those or, or others as you wish. I guess the first kind of element to talk about was, you know, when I joined HG in 2001, we were a generalist investor, we invested in kind of five or six different sectors. At the time, we were 30 people, six partners, we managed to fund of 400 million. And in that first period, we had kind of five or six sectors that we pursued and tech, which I ran was only one of them. Uh, tech ended up becoming, you know, half the business over the next kind of five or six or seven years. And part of that was, you know, we made some good Investment decision as part of it was frankly great timing and good luck. It was kind of post-99.com boom and bust, and very few people were doing tech, and we were one of few people that were investing in it in kind of that period of 01, 2, 3, 4, 5. I think the the first what other people would regard as risky decision, which I frankly don't regard as a risky decision, but the first what would generally be regarded as a risky decision that we took was in Kind of 2007, I got asked to take over as chief executive by the founders who were then starting to retire and talked to my partners and said, look, bluntly, we can either follow this standard path for private equity, which at the time was to be a generalist manager, maybe looking at several sectors and essentially to expand geographically. So every firm in Europe started somewhere. In, In us, for our case, it's the UK. For other firms, it could be in Germany, it could be in Scandinavia. But then the strategy was essentially to move to five or six or seven different offices and to establish a regional presence across Europe via office locations. That, to me at the time, was a standard way. But frankly, there were lots of other firms that were already ahead doing it. And and I've never wanted to be number 17 at anything in my life. And thankfully, neither had my partners. And so although that was the acceptance standard way, I guess it was an aversion to just frankly, be an average. If we did that, or or maybe less than average, or maybe slightly above average, but we didn't think we could get to be number one doing that because there are some terrific firms ahead of us, many of whom are still there and, and are very successful. So for us, it was a kind of case of wanting to kind of pursue something where we felt we could truly be number one, and we could differentiate ourselves, and over time that would hopefully generate you know differential returns and risk-adjusted returns for our clients. And by pursuing a strategy that was then half our business, software and tech exclusively and just focusing all of our efforts on that sector, we felt that we could be number one and we could establish scale and credibility and differentiation. So I think most people would regard that as a risky bet. As it happens, we didn't. We just viewed it as completely logical that we should go and do it and then we had to execute against it.
0: You've really transformed HG, as you just explained there during your time. Have you ever had to change the business's overall approach to risk? I think the firm strategy level, it's
1: stayed very, very consistent. And actually, a lot of the decisions we've made from then on have actually been about continuing to kind of focus and continuing to kind of keep our discipline of the sectors that we operated in and the types of deals that we backed. So it's actually almost been, in our view, kind of eschewing or avoiding other risks. If I take a classic example... You know, in the peak of the last four or five years, you know, we obviously the market peaked in kind of 2000, 2021, both a, a stock market and, and a tech market as well. Frankly, there was enormous amount of pressure, both internally and externally, for us to move into things like crypto or for us to move into things like blockchain or why haven't we got a very high growth fund? You know, I mean, the number of times that people appeared at my desk and said, "Like, well, you know, my friend works for Tiger Global, KOTU, whoever. And they've just made a trillion dollars last week and they made you know half a trillion dollars the week before. And why aren't we doing high growth venture capital, et cetera? And we had to avoid all those kind of like potential hiccups or mistakes. And, and why did we avoid them? A, frankly, we've just been in this business for 30 odd years. And so we've seen that getting distracted at the top of the market by the latest fashion feels like the thing to do, but it's actually incredibly risky if you look at history, which we do a lot. The second thing is. If you're going to move into a new area, I mean, candidly, the stupidest time you could possibly move in is right at the top of the market when you're the newbie and you're going to get all the rubbish that all the existing players don't want to look at. And so whether we would ever move into crypto or blockchain or whatever or high growth, I, I don't know, maybe not for several of them. But if we were, we were never going to do it right at the apex of the market. We'd do it in three, four, five years time when the markets had a much lower ebb when we get time to learn and develop, et cetera. So I think that part of the strategy about when you think about new things is that's as old as the hills. That's not about taking risk. That's just about not being stupid at the top of the market to be completely blunt.
0: So Nick's built his career thinking about risk in a business context. But Johnny, I want to come to you to tell me what we actually mean when we talk about risk in a personal investment context. So I think people sometimes assume it's a dirty word to be avoided, risk. But can you tell us why it's actually an essential part of any personal investment philosophy?
2: Yeah, sure. Just picking up, just first of all, it's very interesting what what Nick was saying about risk and taking the view that if you understand a risk really, really well and be the expert in that risk, in some respects, that can reduce the risk. But for many people, they don't have that knowledge. And after all, most people, when they, when, when they invest, the biggest risk is that you lose your money, either some of it or all of it. And some people get very confused between losses that are unrealized, are just the value falling as opposed to selling something and realised losses, which happen when you sell an asset for below the purchase cost. When, when people are looking at building investment portfolios, there are a number of risks that you can get paid for. I'll just touch on the major ones. The oldest form of risk is credit risk. And this is essentially lending money to an individual or entity and not being paid back. And obviously, if you're lending to an individual or an institution that has low chance of paying you back, you demand a higher return for that risk. That's what we call credit risk. The next risk, which most people are exposed to and the predominant risk in most investment portfolios is equity risk. And this is really taking the risk of investing in a company that doesn't produce revenues more greater than the costs of of producing those revenues. In other words, the profits don't go up and they start losing money and the company goes under. And the way you're paid for that risk is either through a dividend stream or hopefully the value of the company going up, depending on the chance of the company succeeding or not. Now, there are a lot of things that, that affect the value of companies, private and public. With public companies, it's not just the success of the particular company, it might also be related to market sentiment, as we've seen, with stock markets going up and down, many companies that might be faring very well are also brought up and down by by market movements. The next risk we look at is interest rate risk. And and obviously, if you're a borrower, if interest rates go up, you're paying more for the interest cost. If you're a lender, and I'll give you an example here of holding a 10-year bond versus a a short-term investment. If interest rates go up, and say you're earning a return of 4% on the 10-year bond, if interest rates go up to 5% the next year, the value of a bond will go down because you're earning more, if you're earning less than, you, than the bond you could have bought the following year. So that's what we call interest rate risk, or duration risk, which is all related to the, the fluctuation of interest rate rises or falls. The last risk we look at from a market perspective is inflation risk. And this is really the loss of purchasing power you may have in your capital because of rises in inflation. And that's obviously very relevant right now in the current environment with inflation running so high, you want to try and generate returns over and above the rate of inflation. For example, if you're only earning 5% on an investment and inflation is running at 10%, the real return you're receiving from the investment is way less than the nominal return you might be getting without the inflation. So those are the four major risks that we look at from an investment perspective. Now, one thing that a lot of people do is diversify those risks, because of course, Over someone's lifetime, you're exposed to lots of different economic cycles. You might be experiencing growth or recession, inflation, deflation, etc. And these different risks go up and down in different ways depending on the economic cycle. For example, when you've got economic growth, equities tend to perform. When you've got a recession and interest rates tend to come down, bonds start doing better because interest rates go down. When you've got inflation, there are other asset classes that might perform better. For example, property, which might have index-linked rents. commodities which obviously are related to inflation and also you might have inflation protected bonds. There are two other risks I would like to touch on. One which relates to Nick which is illiquidity risk. If of course you have two types of investments you could buy one which is locked up for 10 years and one which you can get back tomorrow if you lock your money up for 10 years you hope to be paid more and for that we call that an illiquidity premium. You're generally paid more to lock your money up. Obviously, that also relates to the manager's skill. And that's the last risk I'm going to talk about, because when you buy exposure investments, there are really two bets you're making. One is the risk you're taking through those different market risks, but then also who to give your money to to manage it. And what we've certainly seen in private markets, i.e., the markets that Nick works in, is the dispersion of returns between the best and worst managers is huge. So you really have to just rely on being with the very best managers which is why funds like HG obviously are ones that you should focus on. Whereas in public markets, it's much more difficult to generate excess returns. Given technology advancements, information flow, it's very difficult nowadays to have an edge. And so when you're making the bet on where you invest, giving your money to someone to outperform the market is a big bet. And sometimes you're not actually paid for that bet. I'm not denying there are some great managers in the world, but there are very few and also persistence of outperformance is also very questionable.
0: So what are the common mistakes that people make when they're setting their personal risk level? Are some people simply too risk averse or some people want to take too much risk?
2: Well, the, the, the biggest mistakes we find that people make is they don't actually relate their risk level to the purpose of their assets. Why do we invest and why do we work? Obviously to spend. But for some clients, it's to spend money on their family or retirement. For other clients, that they're not actually spending money themselves, that they're using their money for the impact on society or future generations. And, and the risks you take should all relate to the purpose of the assets. What return do I need to generate to have the lifestyle or the spend I want to have? Some people don't do that and they just don't take enough risk. And as a result, they, they end up either having to work longer or they can't live the life they want to live. Other people are taking far too much risk, uh, the risk they don't need to take to meet their lifetime aspirations. And then of course, when they hit a big market crash, they don't have the capacity for the fall uh, and they're in worse shape. So it's all about matching the risk with the purpose your assets. And that's, that's the linkage that a lot of people don't, don't make.
0: So can you give me a couple of concrete examples of where you commonly see that people aren't taking enough risk versus where they often are tempted to take risk?
2: Yeah, I mean, there are certain sectors of, of clients that we have, some of the professionals that we see who've got quite stable incomes. They're naturally conservative people, but they're too concerned about the unrealized loss and so falls in market and therefore don't take enough risk. And in many cases, they're stopping work, you know, in their mid fifties and they haven't built up enough capital to fund their retirement. So they haven't taken enough risk while they've been working. And of course, while they've got quite a stable income stream, they've got the ability to take much more risk than they think they can. Plus also, they've got a very long time horizon. And if you've got a very long time horizon, you really can withstand generally falls in market value, it shouldn't affect you. So that, that's that's a good example of people, people taking just not enough risk and not appreciating the risk they have to take.
0: And where do you find or do you find any clients who want to take too much risk in some areas and what areas would they be?
2: Often clients take too much risk because they haven't really formed the linkage between the, the assets and the purpose. Also, some clients don't understand another risk, as we touched on earlier on, is illiquidity. And in some cases, they're taking too much illiquidity. Sometimes some cases, not enough, but sometimes too much. And if the liquid part of their portfolio falls too much in value, they don't have sufficient funds to pay for potential, say, capital calls in the private markets investments that they've that they've made. So they make that mix between the mix between the liquid and illiquid the they get wrong.
0: Interesting. Nick, I'm going to bring this over to you because I can't help but ask what aspects of your personality do you think lend themselves to being a risk taker? What's your personal appetite for risk?
1: It's a really interesting question in the sense that I actually don't think I take much risk at all. And and so, I mean, just to amplify that with some very, very tangible numbers, because I'm an engineer, so everything I do has to be justified by a number, of course. Um, so, you know, HG over 20 years has invested in software only, pretty much software and some tech services, which I guess most people would regard as risky. And we've done that in the private markets, which, again, people would regard as kind of risky and illiquid. Total returns across that 20-year period are kind of 33% IRR, so 33% returns per year. And on average, we make kind of 3.3, 3.4 times return on each investment we make. But crucially, if you look at our volatility, so that is what's the dispersion? Do we have lots and lots of zeros where we lose money, and then an occasional deal that makes 10 or 20 times its money, which is kind of maybe venture capital, which is not what we do. We do buyouts of more mature, cash generative software businesses. Our volatility is actually more than 90% of our investments over a 20 year period have returned more than two times the money or more than a 20% IRR. And our impaired capital, which is the capital where we've returned less than our investment, less than cost, is 0.6% of our investments over that 20 year period. So I think if you compare that to any stock market investments or the like, we're actually making frankly 20 plus points ahead of the stock market over that period of time but we're actually having volatility that is significantly less than the stock market. And where I think that comes back to the risk you're taking and, and, and thinking about Johnny's framework of the different types of risk, I, I personally think the other type of risk is the not knowing what you're doing risk. And so I kind of refer again here to kind of Warren Buffett. Buffett is very famous for being over-concentrated, and that's because he and Charlie Munger believe there are relatively few opportunities in life to make outsized returns, and you should therefore avoid most of the things that come across your desk. But when something comes across your desk that's within your circle of competency, which they spend a lot of time understanding, and frankly I think I and my colleagues at HG have spent a lot of time understanding, there's many, many, many things in the world that we don't understand, even within tech, crypto, blockchain, etc. I talked about very high growth, we don't understand any of that stuff take it wider than tech, you know, consumer behavior, I've got no clue, you know, what the government's going to do next week, I don't have any idea what interest rates might be macro factors don't know. So we've tried to kind of look at all those things that we either don't know, or in other cases, we don't think anybody can know, frankly. And we've tried to remove all of those from our investment strategy. So not only do we just do private software, we actually only do profitable cash generative software, we only do back-office B2B, business-to-business software. We don't do B2C ever. We only do actually within that boring, mission-critical software products, things that people use every day like payroll, bookkeeping, accounting, tax compliance, legislation compliance. So we're actually focused on only one sub-segment of software, and it turns out that sub-segment of software, not accidentally, can avoid all of these macro factors, you know, as a result, you know the kind of software we back, if you have a recession, I used to joke that our software is the last thing that the receiver turns off before the company closes. Even that's not true. When you appoint a receiver to a business, they still need to keep the payroll software, and the bookkeeping software running to do their compliance. And so these are the kind of businesses that grow through all market cycles. They grow, they have very high levels of subscription revenue. So people would look at what we do and say, it's very risky. I think we've managed to distill down even within that apparently very risky macro environment a subsector which is actually big enough to support a business that is now 60 70 billion of assets under management and you know many hundreds of people within hg it's still possible to find a very big subsegment that is actually we don't think very risky but it's back to johnny's point we spent 20 or 30 years honing our craft to understand why
2: it's not risky. It's an interesting point that you make, Nick, and I certainly believe in manager skill and concentration when you really know your onions. What we've observed, actually, in the industry of wealth management is actually over-diversification of risk. And what I mean by that is we're not denying that there are some fantastic managers in the world in every asset class, but there aren't many. And what we've seen in many portfolios that we analyse are 50 to 100 different managers in the portfolio. The, the chance of outperformance is really only available to a few of them. And so statistically, if you've got 100 managers in the portfolio, and maybe 10 or 20 outperform, the other 80 or 90 are underperforming, and they swamp the outperformance of the few. So we see over diversification, extra layers of fees, and you're essentially buying an index. Yeah, and obviously, I am a very happy client of Ytree. So I can relate it to
1: my personal personal investment with you and with Whitree, Johnny, which is I take what would be regarded as very, very, you know, concentrated risk in my HG life. And that's frankly 80, 90% of my assets. The assets that aren't with HG, I obviously then advised by you, take very, very wide diversification, but frankly, low-cost trackers and those kind of things, because I don't think I can judge money managers particularly well. So again, for me it's back to kind of competency. I happen to believe, rightly or wrongly, that after 30-odd years of doing this, I can judge risk in B2B software pretty well, and I'm happy to take that risk. Everything else, I just haven't spent 10,000 hours or 20 30 years judging. So whether XYZ fund manager good or not, it's just too difficult for me to tell. And therefore, I buy the index, and hopefully I make the index plus a little bit.
0: Fantastic. Johnny, at the level of personal finance, can you explain a bit more about Ytree's approach to risk in in terms of how it's different to how other private wealth managers might approach
2: risk? So I guess the starting point is the way we view risk is not just related to investments. Our approach centers around a framework which we call asset liability management, which is a practice that we've learned from working with some of the leading institutional investors in the world. And so what we do is we look at all aspects of your financial life. Starting with your assets, what's the risk in your assets? Then we also look at what's the risk in your liabilities? Obviously, if you've got debt, you're exposed to interest rate risk. We then also look at the risk of your income. If you think about it, a lawyer and a a partner in a law firm has a much lower risk income than a sportsman or a trader. So we look at the different risks you might have in incomes. And then we also look at the risk in your expenditure. And that obviously is very related to inflation. So we look at all these different risks in your financial life. And from that, we help people understand what is the appropriate risk that they need to take to generate sufficient returns over and above their income to meet their lifetime aspirations. And once we've then generated this risk level, or risk mix, we then stress it against various different stress scenarios. For example, inflation risk or market risk or liquidity risk. We also look at the emotional tolerance of the client. And, and from, that, from that framework, we derive the end risk level for a client. It all, all stems up from purpose, all stems from every part of your financial life. And one of the most important things that we don't do is try and time markets. Because if you've worked out what the appropriate risk level is and you've stressed it against various different economic scenarios and you're still okay, you shouldn't have to time markets. What I found over 20 years of working in this this industry is that it's very, very difficult to time markets. I mean, I remember in February, March 2009, when the market was down 50 percent, everyone thought the world was ending. And that's exactly when it was the market bottom. I remember when COVID happened and suddenly the news was a bit better, the market started flying. Even this year, who would expect the market would up nearly, be up nearly double digits this year? Because there's always two decisions you make when you, when you time markets. One is when to sell and one is when to buy back again. And we think that that is a risk for which you're not really paid. It's very difficult to do. So we set this target risk for clients, looking at all the aspects, and then we simply rebalance all the time back to risk targets.
0: Can I just ask you a question? You said you stress test clients' emotional tolerance for risk. How do you do that? Sounds like a frightening process.
2: Well, we, we obviously go through different scenarios with them to understand, you know, what, what is their capacity for loss in a really bad scenario? How would they feel if the market fell 40% and look at the value of their assets go down next? Now, they may have to take that risk. But if they don't have the emotional tolerance to withstand that fall, then they can't take that risk. In which case, They may have to either work longer or change their spending. So it is very much part of it.
0: So the factors that over a lifetime that might affect your personal financial risk level, you look into those as well. What sort of things might
2: they be? Well, obviously, life events, when they're going to stop working, how much they're earning, really what's the purpose of their assets. In some cases, the purpose might not just be for them, it might be for their children, it might be for charity. There are various things that they might want to do with their life. And in fact, each purpose might actually end up having a different risk. Because if you, if you want to build a, a long-term charitable endowment, that can have a very different risk level to meeting, putting food on the table for the next 20 years. So it, it all comes down to what's the purpose of the assets, and what are the things that could affect you over your lifetime that will affect your risk level.
0: So, Johnny, what about you? Um, what's your personal risk level like, and has it changed over the course of your life and career?
2: I guess my risk level has always been quite high, which is demonstrated by the fact that I've been involved in two startups in the last 20 years. In, in some respects, actually I can there's similarities between myself and Nick, and that I guess starting Ytree five years ago might have appeared like a risk, but actually, I'd felt that I had so much experience in the industry. If you become an expert in, in, in one sector, it gives you a head start. If then you design a product that you hope fits the market very well, based on your experience, that also de-risks. And then also you work with incredibly talented people, hire an amazing team, that also de-risks. And this is really what, what we've seen in the last five years, you know, we've now got a pretty big business with over 500 clients. So our risk in the business is going down and I've never really thought it's been a high risk, but, and simply by concentrating my bets into one area, which I knew very, very well with a very, very talented team, a little bit like Nick, as opposed to just going to work for a bank, which I did 20 years ago, or a law firm, which I did 20 years ago. So my capacity for risk has gone up, even though I didn't really think either of the bets were that risky.
0: It seems to me that the big theme that's emerged in our conversation is the more you know, the more you can reduce the fear around risk and risk sort of disappears and don't even need to think about it anymore, as long as you truly understand what it is that you're dealing with
1: on the on the theme of the last point you just made, Harriet, I think the one thing I would probably pick is what I've found you know for myself and my colleagues at hG and also you know for people like Johnny, et cetera is there's a common thread that runs through. I think most people that are taking risks in the sense of being entrepreneurs or starting businesses, but but have done it relatively successfully, which is you have to have an ability to kind of self-assess and self-assess means being able to kind of say what you're not good at as well as what you are good at and so back to this point of trying to develop expertise and really understand something and when you really really understand the the risks to you appear to be low and and they often are quite low but there's lots of things in life that i couldn't do i I mentioned many of them before b2c consumer etc i discovered you know, through my early kind of years, that I was terrible at investing in those kind of things, and so it's quite easy. And frankly, know, like a majority of people in life, go through life kind of like in denial about that being them, and they blame the market or they blame I was unlucky or something. You know, that was out my side, my control. A lot of times, I find like if you internalize it and take responsibility for things, I've said to myself at some point, I'm just terrible at judging consumer behavior, and therefore. I could either carry on doing it and keep being unsuccessful or I could just stop and find something else to do instead. So I think this kind of self-appraisal, trying to work out what you're good at, also involves knowing what you're not good at. And it's actually, if you can celebrate that and say to your colleagues and say to everybody, look, I'm just really terrible at doing these things. I kind of understood myself. I just try not to do those things anymore. By the way, you're really good at it. Can we act as a team and and actually as a team, you could do that and I could do this and we'll be more powerful I know that sounds a little bit trite, but I think it really is a feature and a characteristic that is, is useful for people to think about in their own context.
2: I think that's spot on because the one thing that is so important is humility and the one thing that, that I've seen over the last 20x years is that people generally get bitten by hubris and they get complacent and, and I think that with anyone you know, starting a business or investing in a particular area and having a healthy level of paranoia It's got to be healthy and understanding that things can happen, which you least expect, and being balanced enough with a great team to understand what those might be and then plan against them as much as you possibly can and deal with them in an experienced way can can mitigate many of the risks.
0: Thank you both so much, Johnny and Nick. Thank you for being here today. If any of the issues that we've discussed in today's episode piqued your interest, Please visit y-tree.com to find out more about Y-Tree and the work we're doing to provide an alternative perspective on money and life. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and feel free to explore our back catalogue of content if you want to learn more about money and life.